You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Good GP. My name's Christina and today I'm joined by the lovely Dr. Ashley Smith to discuss a very challenging topic that unfortunately affects many Australian families, regardless of what that family structure might look like, and that is the topic of stillbirth and neonatal death. Now, it is a big topic and we're going to break this up into two episodes. So the first episode, we're going to be focusing more on the medical aspects such as risk factors, causes, presentations, and, you know, various ways that we might be able to reduce the risk. And the second episode, we're really going to take more of a deep dive into looking at the psychosocial aspects and really hone in on how health professionals can best communicate with families and certainly how GPs can support families during this very difficult time. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Ashley Smith today. Hi, Ash, and thanks so much for coming along. Hi, Christina. Thank you for having me. Now, Ash, you're an ONG registrar uh, from Queensland, so you're currently based in Brisbane, but you actually bring a unique perspective to this topic, having been through your own personal experience of a neonatal death, and I guess then have this interesting lens straddling both the health professional aspect, but also bringing that personal experience as well and knowing what it felt like to be told about it and, you know, for people to communicate with you during that time. So, you know, and this, I guess, has led you to wanting to help other health professionals as well, better support women and families during this time. So I really appreciate your insights today and for the next episode as well and and for joining me for this chat. Oh, thank you. It's so important that we start talking about this topic. Yeah, excellent. So to start off with really in the basics around, I wanted to just touch on the classification so that we're all on the same page in terms of the terms that we're using around miscarriage, stillbirth, neonatal death. What do these terms actually mean? So miscarriage is a less than 20 week gestational, less than 400 gram fetus that's delivered. And stillbirth is more than 20 weeks or more than 400 grams, but born with signs of life. Uh, And neonatal death is the death after the baby's born alive uh, up until the age of 28 days old. Okay. And so how common are these, you know, in the community? What's the incidence like? So stillbirth is one in every 137 women who reach 20 weeks of gestation. They'll go on to have a stillborn child, which is pretty high percentage. And that sort of equates to six stillbirths every day in Australia and two neonatal deaths every day. The rate of stillbirth in Australia is 6.7 per 1,000 births. And this is higher for Indigenous women and other disadvantaged groups. Right. And so it is quite high. I mean, it surprised me actually, because I think we always think around miscarriages being quite common. And, you know, certainly we talk to women who are experiencing that, you know, around the fact that it is something that's not necessarily talked about a lot, but it is something that a a lot of women go through and a lot of families go through. Um, But it was actually a surprise to me to hear those statistics and to hear that um, even once you've progressed much further through the pregnancy, that there are still high rates of adverse outcomes. Yeah, I think you see a lot of pregnant women uh, in your practice. Is that right? I mean, in the hospital setting, that's commonly, you know, something we see at least every week. But what about you? Yeah, so I mean, certainly I would definitely I would see miscarriage much more commonly. Um, Certainly do have unfortunately have 
families who've been through the experience of a stillbirth or neonatal death. But I think, yeah, it's always just surprising to sometimes see those statistics. Mm. And I guess reinforces to us what an important topic it is to be talking about and how we can support families. Because like you say, I mean, as in the hospital working in obstetrics, you know, you're going to be seeing it a lot. As GPs, you know, we, we also do see it a lot as well. So really important conversation to be able to have. Yeah. So what about risk factors when it comes to, you know, stillbirth and neonatal death? So there's fetal factors or maternal factors and fetal would be uh, growth restriction or congenital abnormalities would be the more common ones. And maternal factors, smoking, medical illnesses that might be poorly controlled, these might include diabetes, hypertension, antiphospholipid syndrome, chronic kidney disease, also increased BMI or obesity. Pregnancy that goes beyond 41 weeks gestation would be post-dates and they have an increased risk of stillbirth. Primer parity, maternal age more than 35, certainly more than 40, and previous stillbirth is an increased risk factor as well. Um, we'll talk about it a bit later but also sleeping in the supine position so lying on the back has an increased risk of stillbirth in late pregnancy so uh, we always advise women to safe sleeping would be on their side the trimester and anyone that presents with uh, you know maternal perception of reduced fetal movements particularly more than at 28 weeks needs urgent review in the obstetric review center. Yeah, okay. So um, I guess branching out from risk factors in terms of thinking around the actual causes, what I guess conditions would be associated, you know, with stillbirth? Congenital abnormalities, 20% are unexplained um, stillbirths, but that increases to almost half of stillbirths that occur near or at full term um, are unexplained. And Certainly that lack of diagnosis increases parents' distress as they struggle to sort of understand what went wrong and will it happen again in a subsequent pregnancy. Yeah, okay. Um, Now in terms of um, presentation, you know, I guess thinking about how women would generally present, you know, that might alert you that there could be a concern around stillbirth. Yeah, there can be a, a serious range in their presentation. So they might not have any concerns and you might be unable to find the fetal heart on auscultation or they might be presenting with reduced fetal movements so that um, you'd need to go through a pathway of investigating. Um, They'd need a CTG, you need to measure the symphysiofundal height and if you're suspicious of uh, small for gestational age or growth restriction, they would need an urgent growth and wellbeing ultrasound. And we also consider doing a Kleihauer when any woman presents with reduced fetal movements in the third trimester to investigate for subclinical abruption. Uh, other ways that it might present could be someone who has known PPROM or has developed chorioamnionitis, or they might present in preterm labour. And particularly if they're less than 23 and three weeks gestation, that baby is not viable. So it would, you know, even if born, born alive would uh, likely be a neonatal death. Even since I've progressed through medical school and, you know, um, having done my hospital years and done some training through obstetrics and then come into general practice, the outlook for babies born around 23, 24 weeks gestation has changed a little bit. So, you know, at the moment with what we with what we know and, and with current medical advances, where do we currently sit with that in terms of, you know, what would be considered potentially viable? 
That's really topical and I suppose what you really, for me and in the hospital setting, it's the decision is at what gestational age would you give steroids? And I think that depends where you are and it probably depends what state you're in. In At the Royal Brisbane, normally about 23 and 3, but, you know, I guess that would be dependent on the hospital and the clinical unit. And if you're expecting delivery at that sort of a gestation, they would certainly need to be transferred to tertiary neonatal care. Yeah, and a lot of discussion, I guess, with mum and dad around outcomes outcomes and the decision to provide sort of comfort care versus active sort of resuscitation. And That's um, right. Yeah. Okay. So what about in terms of reducing the risk? I mean, this is such a devastating outcome for families when it does happen, you know, and we talked a little bit about risk factors before. And I think as health professionals, whenever there's something that's irreversible um you know we want to be able to try and stop it before it even happens and you know we want to look to the to the evidence where we can to try and see what what can we tangibly do to try and help to reduce the risk of this happening for families so can you comment in from that perspective? Yeah, we can divide that. So prenatally, optimize any medical conditions that the woman might have and don't hesitate for early preconception, pre-pregnancy referral to either an obstetrician or obstetric medical physician. So if the patient has chronic kidney disease or hypertension, poorly controlled diabetes and antiphospholipid syndrome, because in that particular setting, they'd need to start aspirin and low molecular weight heparin at the diagnosis of their pregnancy. Other things prenatally to consider is folic acid administration and a higher dose if if they're obese. Um, People often forget to administer the higher dose regime if they're obese and um, smoking cessation, minimize any infections or infective risks. So if your patient's a childcare worker, you'd be advising washing hands and avoiding secretions using gloves, etc. And then antenatally, the NIPT test for aneuploidy or com- combined f- first trimester screen and screening for any underlying conditions, monitoring the blood pressure, testing the urine for proteinuria for any evidence of preeclampsia, investigating for gestational diabetes, do an early OGTT if there's risk factors, and monitor for any infections, measuring the symphysiofundal height, and certainly doing the routine scans, particularly the morphology scan, to determine if there's any um, congenital abnormalities. And then if you're suspicious of intrauterine growth restriction or small for gestational age, ordering a scan at that time as well. And then there's a thing we were talking about earlier, Christina, is the Safer Baby Bundle for Australian maternity healthcare professionals, which is a collection of ideas or interventions being pitched to Australia because it's worked so well in the UK for reducing late pregnancy stillbirth. And that's a bundle of five things. So stopping smoking, improving detection of IUGR, um, which is growth restriction, so that's through the symphysiofundal height measurements or maternal monitoring of fetal movements. So explaining about the mother to pay attention to these and if she has any concerns to present to the obstetric review centre and then advising the sleeping on the side uh, because research shows that going to sleep on your side from 28 weeks of pregnancy can halve your risk of stillbirth compared to going to sleep on your back. 
um, and then improve decision-making about timing of delivery. So certainly we wouldn't want patients going beyond 41 weeks gestation because post-dates would increase their risk of intrauterine fetal death and stillbirth. But, you know, depending on the, the comorbidities or the pregnancy risks, then you might decide to deliver earlier for whatever reason. Excellent. Thanks so much for that. And um, I'd encourage GPs to have a look at that, you know, what you just mentioned, the Safer Baby Bundle. Um, you can find it on the probably just Googling Safer Baby Bundle. And, yeah. um, or the Stillbirth Centre of Research Excellence. That's a great resource for GPs to look up anytime and that bundle's included on there. Yeah, excellent. So the um, stillbirthcre.org.au, I think it is. Nice. Um, and, you know, it might be a good one for GPs to be able to have a look at. I just wanted to um, dive a little bit further into the, I guess, fetal movements, because it is something that, you know, we get asked about a lot as health professionals, and there is lots of information out there. I guess just to reinforce to GPs, you know, when would women generally start feeling fetal movements? What's normal with that and what's not? And I guess just a around, you know, approximately what women can expect, you know, I guess generally talking to women about finding what the pattern is for their for themselves and their own baby and then thinking about if there's a change to that. Um, but is there any like sort of further discussion you'd have with women around fetal movements? Uh, not really. It is a perception thing, isn't it? So it's what they perceive as normal. And if they're worried, I always say, if, if you're worried, I'm worried. And if they're worried, then they need a scan and they need a CTG and they need a full assessment, particularly in the third trimester. And really, I think they should go straight to the hospital if they're worried about that. Yeah. And so that's really important. Sort of don't, you know, I guess an important message not to delay because I think there used to be some, you know, education around like tell the woman to, you know, have a sit down, have a glass of cold water and keep waiting. And that, <laughs> um, but really that sort of, is, yeah, that's, that's really out. Been, that's <laughs> yes. And so really, if a woman's presenting to the GP and they do raise that concern, then the best thing the GP can do is just arrange for, the, for sort of an immediate transfer into their maternal unit, you know, or unless the GP is equipped as like a GP obstetrician, for example, mm. to do some of that monitoring or work up themselves. But, you know, otherwise that really, it's a prompt um, referral in, you know, to make sure that, that that's addressed in a timely manner. Yeah, and ideally auscultate, check that there is a fetal heart and try and give some reassurance. But even if like, even if there's a normal fetal heart rate, definitely in the third trimester, because they've presented and said that they've got reduced fetal movements, then they, they do need the full CTG, probably a Clihauer and certainly a growth and wellbeing ultrasound within the next 24 to 48 hours. And that can all be done at the hospital. Excellent. So thank you so much, Ash. I've really enjoyed having a chat and getting a little bit more into this topic. As I mentioned at the start for our listeners, we are going to be recording another episode as part of this series. Um, so please join us for that next episode where we really are going to have a bit more of a chat around the communication and, and mental health aspects, I guess, related to stillbirth and neonatal death. So thanks again, Ash. Oh, thanks, Christina. Thanks, Christina.